to stand in a lonely place. Miles from the nearest home and many miles further from any real town or city. To stand on nothing but dry sand beneath the light of a million bright stars. 4,000 miles from the beginning of the journey and over 3,000 miles yet from the finish. For this one moment, to stand before a giant crater of fire, measuring over 230 feet across, the fire rising from deep within it, it lights up the night with an otherworldly glow. And though it is not known as one of the wonders of the world, it feels like it to the one who stands there. The rusty, dilapidated vehicle that they arrived in the previous day may not start tomorrow. And indeed, there have been several days already on the journey where it didn't start. There is no one available to help in such a case. There is no service on call. There is no one around but in this moment, standing there, in that place. At this point on the journey, the one who stands there is thankful for the fact that he or she began. You are listening to Landfall. Welcome to Landfall Radio. I'm your host, Barnabas. This is going to be an hour or less of encouragement, imagination, and challenges. And I suppose I said that in the wrong order because if you um, say it, imagination, challenges, and encouragement, it very cleverly spells out the acronym ICE. And this is probably thanks to my subconscious, which still identifies as a Fairbankson. I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is the city in the very heart of the largest state in the United States of America. Now, Fairbanks is a city of 35,000 people, with roughly 70,000 others living in the surrounding suburbs and military bases. These are, of course, only the survivors of the harsh winters that one finds in that city. Lying in a valley surrounded by hills, the city suffers from pollution every winter as all efforts to stop tens of thousands of people from burning wood to keep from freezing to death have failed. 
Joining the wood smoke, the exhaust of 50,000 cars gathers into a dense ice fog, reducing visibility in the city to a minimum on the sub-zero days, which are very frequent. It is the site of the world's greatest ice sculpting competition, drawing talent from dozens of nations every single year. Altogether, it is impossible to grow up in Fairbanks and not have so-called ice in your veins, except for those few who break at some point and flee to San Diego, never to speak again of their past, and we never speak of them again. With Fairbanks' based subconscious still making very strange decisions and suggestions in my head, Landfall Radio is based now in a tiny camper trailer converted into a broadcasting studio, currently parked in Anchor Point, the small Alaskan town that I have called home for many years now. A town of roughly 2,000 inhabitants. Anchor Point's greatest claim to fame is being the most westerly highway point that one can reach on the highway system of North America. It is also possibly the most heavily armed community in the United States, in the world, though it is impossible to know for sure, as statistics are not generally measured for towns of this size. Adventure, opportunity, and space is what so many came to Alaska seeking, from the days of the gold rush to the present times. And many of us feel that it is somewhat unfortunate that one can live a modern city life in Anchorage, our largest city, a city of over 210,000 people. We knew it was over when Bed Bath & Beyond moved into a modernistic shopping strip in the city. Yet even many Anchorage residents crave wild adventure, as the number of massive pickups returning to the city from uncivilized lands every fall proudly bearing gigantic moose antler racks are astounding in number. I have been privileged to return alive from a number of these excursions, where one attempts to load all one might need to stay alive and thrive in the wild for two weeks onto one's back, while leaving room for another one or two hundred pounds of meat if one is successful. Though it must be admitted that the possibility of success and extra weight is often an afterthought, something that will be dealt with at the time that the situation should arise. There was a time when my younger brother and I ran over three mountain peaks in one day, and though uh, temperatures were ranging from 60 degrees at the base, they were about 35 degrees at the top as we raced after the elusive game. I was, quite frankly, out of shape, and it showed. We lost the game, but at least the brown bear that ran up to check us out decided not to make game out of us. It is one of those life experiences that is nothing but difficulty, sweat, and bruises in the moment, and later is remembered as one of the best times of a life. It is this draw to adventure, perhaps, which prompted me 
to spend three days reading everything I could find about a race that traverses Europe and Asia called the Mongol Rally. It starts near London in the United Kingdom, and although it originally ended in Mongolia, as it is named the Mongol Rally, the difficulty of um, disposing of vehicles in Mongolia uh, caused the people who were organizing the rally to move the ending point into Yulayud, Siberia, which is just north of the Mongolian border. And after the change, the distance of this rally is now seven to 10,000 miles or more based on the route that one takes, as there is absolutely no established route whatsoever, and in many places there are very limited options for a route that are even in existence. One simply has to make a route in some locations. When I went onto the website that the organizers of this rally have put together, I learned that there are in fact only a couple basic rules that one must follow in order to be a part of this rally. In addition to having to commit to raise a certain amount of money for charity, there are basically two very general rules that one must follow. Number one, the car that one selects to cross Europe and Asia must be an absolute junker, a verifiable rust bucket, and the engine can be no larger than 1.2 liters at the most. Now in the United States, it's rather difficult to even find a vehicle with a 1.2 liter engine or smaller, making uh, most American teams that join the rally uh, search for a vehicle to do so in uh, somewhere in Europe where such vehicles are somewhat easier to find. The second rule is that teams cannot be in any way financially supported by outside groups. The team must do everything on their own, and not only finance everything on their own, but uh, there can be no backups, no associations uh, at the standing at the ready to bail them out. They must deal with breakdowns and difficulties on the spot with the help of locals. There is no rescue operation. No one comes to save you. And following those basic two rules, um, purchase a junker and secure no outside help, one can have the honor of competing in the Mongol Rally. Although there is no prize for crossing the finish line first, the point is to cross, even if you lose your car over a cliff and have to hitchhike to Siberia. Nonetheless, the event has exploded in popularity over the past few years, with some 300 vehicles and 1,000 participants taking place in last year's challenge. Some years only see half or less of the teams actually make it to the finish line, and yet people continue to line up more and more every year. After searching for a while, I was able to find a fairly detailed chronicle of the rally uh, put together by 
New York City-based photographer Drew Gurian, who completed the rally in 53 days with his team of four, uh, using two Nissan Micras that they obtained in Europe. They arrived at the finish point of Yulin Yud after traveling through 18 countries, nowhere near the record of 40 nations that was seen by one team, but still leaving them with a tremendous feeling of accomplishment. And as they celebrated the finish with other survivors, the stories they swapped of adventure and misadventure would leave all of us who consider ourselves sane human beings wondering what on earth would possess a person of normal mental faculties to take on such a challenge. The tiny cars that had been their only refuge were far from being up to the task on the surface of it. When they reached the finish line, Drew Gurian had gone through a head gasket, a radiator, a couple axles, and numerous other parts. But the point of the rally is to force you to spend two months in a vehicle that is absolutely ill-equipped for the trip. In the plains of Mongolia, on a stretch that could not even be imagined as a road by American standards, they broke down while trying to cross a muddy riverbed. There are many parts of the world where there are no bridges across the rivers that one must cross, and this was one such place. After the axle broke, they were forced to contact locals for a tow. The tow showed up in the form of a flatbed truck that had no mechanism for actually loading the car onto the bed. They were able, through thinking about it for a while and devising an ingenious method, to load the car onto the bed by pushing the car up a berm that they found near where the breakdown occurred so that they could back the flatbed up into the berm and push the car onto the flatbed. Out here, in the middle of nowhere, in the most literal sense of the term that one can still imagine in the world, there are few facilities with gasoline, and where there is gas, it is often heavy with lead, which would destroy the carburetor of a small vehicle of this engine type. But the riverbeds in between the rolling hills and the beautiful mountains of Mongolia, similar in many ways to the northern plains of Alaska, are by no means the only danger to these tiny cars. Through Afghanistan and Tajikistan winds the Pamir Highway, known as one of the most dangerous highways in the entire world. The thin, unpaven highway, littered with sharp rocks and steep drops to the side, climbs to nearly 16,000 feet above sea level. And this highway is the domain of strong trucks, not tiny cars, as a 1.2-liter engine is lucky to even manage some of the inclines. Yet the beautifully layered mountains and sweeping vistas of this thoroughly unknown part of the world are a breathtaking reward for those who are crazy enough to make this trip. Before arriving at the Pamir Highway, the roots of this rally mostly wind through the former Soviet nation of Turkmenistan, 
since you are likely an American listening to this, you may be tuning out at the mention of Tajikistan and Turkmenistan. We've all heard of Afghanistan, though for many of us it's simply over there somewhere. If you look at a map of Asia, you can find Turkmenistan on the Caspian Sea, north of Iran and east of Afghanistan. Put another way, if you imagine Asia as a whole, uh, as if you were looking up at the underside of a stealth fighter passing overhead to the right, Turkmenistan would be right where one of the rear sets of landing gear would be the upper set, to be precise. And although that may be a difficult analogy, I would invite anyone to look at a map of Asia, find a better analogy, and send it to me, if you would. It was in Turkmenistan that Drew Gurian documented his night at the Darvaza gas crater, which is known to the locals as the door to hell. In 1971, Soviets were drilling in the region when they drilled into a cavern filled with natural gas. The surrounding ground collapsed into the cavern, forming a gigantic crater measuring some 230 feet across. The engineering experts of the drill, in their immense wisdom, recommended that the gas be lit on fire and burned off to avoid potential danger to the surrounding areas. They thought it would burn off in a matter of a few days. And yet, as you can even see from Google Earth, the crater burns to this day, a gargantuan hole in the ground that lights up the uninhabited desert with an unearthly feel. When one reaches the desert fire pit, one has made it over halfway through the route with only the most desolate parts such as the Pamir Highway in the wild plains of Mongolia, to yet look forward to. The first half of the route is wildly variable. Some teams dip down into Africa before making the push to Mongolia, while others head to the northern, regions, <clears throat> northern reaches of Europe, with at least one team having been known to cross the Arctic Circle in Sweden. As in Asia, political winds can be a tremendous challenge in Eastern Europe. In 2008, a number of teams were in the nation of Georgia when war broke out there. All the teams were able to successfully pull out of the country after a few days of tents um, waiting by uh, the relatives who were not able to hear from them for a time. And uh, also, more recently, when a Russian plane was shot down by Turkey in November of 2015, followed by subsequent terrorist bombings across the nation of Turkey, many teams who had been planning to go through Turkey scrambled to find other routes uh, to the trip. There is no assistance given for help with visas for the dozen or more nations that cross the route, and teams are often turned back at some point when paperwork was not properly prepared. And though some may stress over it above all, the fact is that passports and visas and political situations are one of the few things in the rally that one can, on some level, more or less prepare for. Routes must be changed based on conditions. Breakdowns must be managed with no help 
from the outside world. It is rivers that must be crossed with no bridges, a car that by the very rules must be on the verge of breaking down. It is mountains to cross on perilous little-known highways that are deep with sand and mud that cannot be prepared for and must be faced in the moment. Yet, as one rally finisher said, the day that everything goes wrong turns out, in the end, to be the best day. Because that's when you discover. That's when you grow. That's when you learn that there are locals all over the world who are kind and good. In almost every corner of the world, you can find a helping hand. And you can find it relatively easily. It's where you learn that you can make it when you have literally nothing to go on but a brain to figure out a problem yourself. The organizers of the rally didn't want to end up organizing some sort of tourist trip where one can traverse Europe and Asia on good highways in indestructible vehicles. It's often mentioned how easy the rally would be if you could just hop into a Land Rover and head out. But they wanted an adventure where you were guaranteed not possibly, but virtually guaranteed to fail and figure it out. To fail again and figure it out again. In a few short years, the rally grew from a couple people to a thousand. A thousand people who insanely line up at a starting point near London with no idea what awaits them on the road. Because every person takes a slightly different path. Every person has to take a different path as every person experiences different challenges. And all they have to carry them through is the smallest of beat-up junk vehicles. Though months of preparation are essential to success, one doesn't accomplish the Mongol rally by just figuring it all out and then executing. One has to line up at the starting line and begin and figure it out a day at a time. One will never sleep 14,000 feet above sea level. One will never drive across rolling plains without roads. One will never spend a night at a crater of fire or find a friend in an overlooked part of the world where you can't even speak a common language. If one doesn't line up at the start and begin. You may think you'd have to be absolutely insane to take on the Mongol Rally adventure. And that's probably true. It may not be the adventure for all of us. Even though I spent days devouring everything I could read about it, I won't be signing up for it just yet. I feel that it's nice in the United States to have tens of thousands of miles to explore with all manner of climates and terrain, with different cultures and cuisines, and without having to worry about visas or wars breaking out. 
But there is a challenge that must be embraced by us all. And you will never know the adventure. You will never stand on the mountain if you don't line up at the start and begin. I'd like to take this segment in the show to answer some frequently asked questions. One question that I have received a number of times is, where did this show come from? The answer to that would be that I worked for over four years with an assisted living and senior housing nonprofit corporation. I maintained uh, nine buildings. And one has plenty of time to think when working reassembling drain pipes for hours in a stuffy crawl space. I suppose that with months to think about the next five-year phase of life after maintenance, this is what I concocted. An alternative, uh, alternate answer. I will neither confirm nor deny whether this idea was born in the moment when a pipe a coworker was sawing on exploded and splattered foul-smelling black drain goo all over my face. Question. What will the show look like over the coming months? Answer. The plan is to take advantage of the rethinking of audio arts that is currently going on in America to build a platform which will help us all see ourselves in a different light. From current topics to fictional storylines to interviews with inspirational people you may never hear from elsewhere, Landfall is intended to be a tribute to great American radio in a modern format. Alternate answer. Who in the world knows? I'm in a tiny trailer with a microphone and a computer that I could scarcely afford trying to sound like I know what I'm doing. Predicting where this will all go is like asking a caterer how many hors d'oeuvres will uh, be needed without telling them how many people will be served. Question. What is behind the name? Answer. Landfall evokes the making of land at points along a great adventure at sea. And if we view our life as a great adventure in this light, we might think of landfall as a moment in time to rest, to reflect, to take bearings, to plan, to take counsel with others. In some small way, my hope is that this show will be those moments at times, challenging your thinking, spurring your imagination to push higher and to dream and imagine higher results, higher adventures for yourself. Alternate answer. After several months of searching through already used titles and already purchased and registered websites, 
I finally found one that I could live with and grabbed it up before the next Bill or Bob who's thinking the same things as me somewhere in the world acted first. Question. What is the larger vision? Answer. To find the good in all corners of our culture. To exaggerate it in fiction and tall tales. To find those who, li uh, who love the simple joys of life. To draw out their secrets. Today I'm in Anchor Point, the furthest west that one can drive in all of North America. And perhaps one day I will find myself in Lubeck, Maine and understand what joys, trails, and spirit form a well-rounded life in the furthest east that one can drive in the United States. Alternate answer. I do not think I should divulge the larger vision. What kind of businessman would that make me? Question. How are you going to support this endeavor? Answer. I think that we are on the verge of some amazing changes in the way funding is achieved and given, um, in the way that giving is practiced in the United States of America. But those changes don't come in one day, and in the meantime, much of the entertainment and media world runs on advertisements, sponsors, and donations. I will definitely have more on that in the future. Alternate answer. Things will definitely just be tight for a while. But this is America. If I happen to stumble on a kind of tree bark that makes me feel amazing, I might invent the next billion-dollar sub-supplement scheme and make a fortune. Who knows? Question. What are some hints of upcoming topics and acts? Answer. I don't have anything specific this early, but I expect there will be plenty of talk of Alaska in the early months, and you might even hear from some inhabitants who are stranger than I. There may be some talk of a thrilling and ongoing quest in space, and who knows, tomorrow hasn't happened yet. If I have a hilariously close scrape with an unfortunate demise, or find someone who has and is willing to talk about it, that will be definitely uh, covered on prime time on the show. Alternate answer. Think Thursday blues. That is all I am going to say for now. Just think about it. In fact, get on Twitter and tweet the hashtag, hashtag Thursday blues for whatever reason and with whatever message pops into your head in the moment right now. We'll flesh it out sometime in the future, but there has to be some someone out there right now who is thinking exactly what I am thinking about this topic. Hashtag Thursday Blues. Question. What is a podcast? Answer. Podcasting, essentially internet-streamed radio, is like so many things with the internet. It took a medium of the past, namely radio, and made it accessible to anyone. Anyone with a cheap microphone can record a show and post it online. 
And while my generation tends to celebrate the openness and lack of gatekeepers, such as major radio associations and producers of the past, unfortunately, this has caused a lot of noise with very little real good content. But the opportunity is there, and internet-based audio arts are really just beginning to get off the ground. The next decade will truly see a revolution in the way people listen and the standards that they demand. Although the future seems at times to be headed toward virtual reality and the development of more automation, there has never been and never will be a replacement for the power of imagination that well-done audio can unlock. And thus there has never been a better time to be in the audio arts than right now, with the rise of the confusing and poorly managed, but opportunity-laden world of podcasting. Alternate answer. Well, despite how many times I've been asked what a podcast is, if you're listening to this, you probably figured it out already, and so the question is rather moot, despite the long-windedness of the previous answer. Question. What makes you think you can pull this off? Answer. The way I see things, you should have a blueprint for what you want to accomplish in life. But that's way too big to obsess over every minute. You only have the moment. And there's so much opportunity right here and now. To succeed one day at a time is to succeed. This is a lesson that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, and a lesson which many helpful gurus of the modern day um, push people to try to understand, and yet it is still so hard to really strike the needed balance. But I have an opportunity to do this right now, and so I will do it for the next few weeks, and if that works out, I'll do it for a few more weeks. Alternate answer. Ask any average pollster from last year's election if improbable things can happen. A quick thanks is in order in this pilot episode of Landfall. I want to give thanks above all to God, the original author of life and the one who allowed us all to wake up this morning. I want to thank my family for giving me everything, including the power to imagine. I want to thank all my close friends who have encouraged me from the moment that I announced I was resigning a good job to do something insane. A special thanks to Sarah for taking over my computer for a while and generating my theme music from a very simple tune I jammed out on the piano, which I do not play. In the days I spent poring over the Mongol rally, I was thinking often of the crowd of excited people gathered in their tiny cars at the starting line. How daunting it must be to look toward a 10,000-mile stretch of unknowns and almost guaranteed failures, 
carried through in a woefully inadequate vessel. It's so easy to tie that image to life itself. Here we are, stuck in a frail body that breaks so easily, with a whole life of blind unknowns and many guaranteed failures. Here in Alaska, so many people depend on one season and so many variables for their livelihood. The harsh winter makes many industries impossible, and so many thousands hunker down and wait it out and play on snow machines and skis, waiting for the next summer when their industry will once again come alive. And yet the next summer season of fishing or timber or tourism is an unknown. You must prepare and face it with the resolve to do the very best and take what comes and accommodate for the failures and the trials and the difficulties that will arise. And so whether it's fishing or whether it's life goals or whether it's the Mongol rally or whether it's a podcast, one thing is sure. In what we do in life, there are failures, yes. But there are tremendous blessings, mountain peaks of accomplishment. There will be nights in the desert, staring at the wonder of a massive crater of fire that will never be experienced. If you, if I, don't begin the adventure.